I am glad to see y'all here today. Um, okay. Give me one second. I have to find my glasses. They're on. Wait. Oh, okay. I love that that just happened. I do that all the time. I'm like, where's my phone? Where, where is my phone? Neely, have you seen my phone? He's like, uh, the one you're holding? Yes. Well, it happens to the best of us, right? Actually, I did that on purpose. <laughs> um, when I was at Myrtle Beach a few weeks ago, I would be standing around and I would be going, did I get my phone? And my friends would look at me and say, look in your hand. Or I would look for my sunglasses and they'd be on the string around my neck or on top of my head or something. And they were like, you know, it's right under your nose. It's right there. And there are so many things that in life we just overcomplicate that we um, just forget about. And we don't, we don't realize they are right under our nose. And so we're going to talk about that today. We spend a lot of time as human beings, um, making mountains out of molehills. Amen? And we don't have to do that. We often overcomplicate things, especially faith. I'm going to tell you a story um, from 1962 at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, and it also happened at University of Chicago and a couple of other universities and a gentleman by the name of Carl Bart. Now picture this old man, gray-headed, um, glass, you know, the really nerdy 60s glasses, the, the bow tie, the suit, and he's coming to speak in what they called the Warfield Lectures at Princeton. And this was the theology student group. And so they're all coming. They've paid big money to go to Princeton to learn about Jesus so that then they can go and teach about Jesus. And so Karl Barth, this learned theologian, comes in. He's an author who for 35 years worked on a six million word document called Church Dogmatics. And he is coming to speak to them. And these guys, because it was mostly men in seminary then, um, these guys are ready. They are sitting there in their chairs in Miller Chapel and they have their pen and their pencil ready, and there's a Q&A time, and they just can't wait. Although one of the students said asking him a question might be like tangling with Socrates. So they were a little bit intimidated, but one of them asked the question, would you distill the essence of your magnum opus in a few words? Six million words. 35 years of writing, that's just one of his works, and this student wanted him to sum it up in a sentence or two. Everybody's on the edge of their chair. This is it. This is the key to understanding Jesus. This is, they are going to go far in the church and in their ministry all because of this one answer. And Carl Barth says, okay, are you ready? And they said, yes. And he says, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. There were some mad seminarians in that room. They wanted the complex answer. They wanted the lengthy, the, the key, the code that unlocked it all. And they're getting the song that their mom sang to them when she told them goodnight and they sang before bed and sang their prayers. 
They were not happy. Hugh Kerr, one of the professors there, documents this in his book called The Simple Gospel. And just how profound that moment was for his students and throughout his systematic theology teaching. King Solomon, um, in 1 Kings, had a dream. And he dreamed that he had gone and he had sacrificed. And in that dream, uh, God came to him and he said, I'm going to give you something. I want to give you something. What do you want me to give you? And he said, God, I want wisdom. And God said, you know what? You didn't ask for a long life. You didn't ask for me to slay your enemies. You asked for knowledge. I'm going to grant this for you. And Solomon was known as being one of the wisest men of all time, one of the most wise kings. He um, had great skill. He built a temple. He built many other buildings, homes, residences, he built um, complexes within the town there, and he was known for his ability to rule and to be smart. We think about Solomon and when the two moms came to him, and he's trying to figure out who the real mom is. And the, the two moms are fighting over the one child, both saying they're that child's mom. And he asked them, he says, okay, I know what we're going to do. We're going to split this child in two. And the mom one of the moms looks up and says, no, let her have him. And he knew from his wisdom that the mother's heart was the one that wouldn't harm the child. This is a man of great knowledge. In Ecclesiastes 1, 16 through 18, though, he, he tells us, I spoke in my heart saying, I have been given great and increase wisdom more than anyone who has ever been before me. In Jerusalem, my heart has had the great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I have set my heart to know wisdom and to know the folly of ideas and to know foolish behavior, and I know this as well as it is like chasing the wind, for in an abundance of wisdom is an abundance of frustration. Wisdom wasn't exactly what he thought it would be. There was a, a man by the name of William James Sidis, um, and he lived um, in the late 1800s to around the time of World War II, and he, was, he is known as one of the smartest men of all time. This young man entered Harvard any, earlier than anybody ever has. He was 11 years old. Now think about it. That's the age of our confirmands. Would you send your confirmand off to Harvard, first of all? But he was smart enough to go. And he graduated from there, and he was so wise. He was teaching Euclidean geometry. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds really smart. My sister might be able to tell me. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Um, but he's teaching that and non-Euclidean geometry and trigonometry and all these advanced courses. And then he decides, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to Rice. And then so he goes to Rice University. He becomes a professor. He goes on to teach more and goes to law school. And then all of a sudden, one day, he just said, I'm done. I'm done. And he walked away from it all. 
He's known to have had office jobs with um, just simple administrative work. He's known to have done streetcar work and all these different things. And every time somebody would find him, he would quit and he would move on. And somebody asked him why. And he said, I just want to live. I just want to simply live. He wanted to get the good stuff out of life. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with knowledge, but it doesn't feed our souls. It feeds our minds, and sometimes that helps to feed our soul, but it's not always the thing that feeds our soul. If we go to Scripture in the New Testament, we hear a variety of stories about Jesus' encounter with people, one of which is... um, is a scripture passage that takes place in John 9, and I encourage you to go read that later today. Jesus encounters a man who was born blind, and he sees him, and he comes to talk to him, and he takes clay and, and spit, and he rubs it on this man's eyes, tells him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash, and the man does it, and he can see. And people around him are like, who was that? And he said, I don't know. And they said, where did he go? And he said, I don't know. Well, then they get the man's parents in and say, are you really the man that was born blind? Because you you can't see now. And his parents say, yes, this is him. But he's of age, let him speak for himself. And so the man is then interviewed by the Pharisees, the religious authorities of the day. And the religious authorities are trying to... um, trying to conspire against Jesus during this time. And they, they come to the man and they say, who is he? This man must be a sinner. And, and, and the man looks at him and he says, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. I don't know who he is. What I do know is that yesterday I was blind and now I see. That is all that mattered he got it he knew that he was blind and now he saw it and it was all because of his encounter with Jesus Christ in Matthew 11 we are in a passage of prayer where Jesus is beginning to pray and I'll share the prayer with you in just a minute but understand that leading up to this prayer has been a time of people trying to figure out who Jesus is They've been trying to figure out if he really is this son of God, son of man. He's been and he's, he's ministered. He's healed. He's um, given sight to the blind. He's made the lame to walk. He's done all these things prophesied in Scripture. And he's sending messages back and forth between John the Baptist and himself and verifying who each of them are to all the people who will listen. He then begins to say, as he steps aside and begins to pray, Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have concealed your ways from sophisticates and know-it-alls, but spelled them out clearly to ordinary people, for that is the way you like to work. And that's a paraphrase from the message. But he's saying, God, you know, you are opening eyes to this, and sometimes it's, it's the most ordinary person that gets this, especially children. 
Matthew 18, 1 through 5 speaks to this. And this week in Kids Mission Camp, I've worked Kids Mission Camp for the two years we've had it and am just so excited to be working with it again this week. But these kids get it. They leave here so excited. Have we got anybody in here who's been to Kids Mission Camp or helped with it before? I don't see anybody. Please, I, I encourage you, just come up one day. Just come up one day and watch. It is contagious, the joy these kids have for serving God. It's amazing to watch them. We're going to be working with River Life. We're going to be doing backpacks for Poplar Road. And we're going to be teaching them what it's like to be a missionary in their school. To the new kid, to the kid who's bullied, to the kid who's rejected, to the kid who's just lonesome. And we're going to be teaching them what it means to carry Christ with you because it's really just a matter of loving people. Amen? So in Matthew 18, 1 through 5, we hear the story of the disciples. And they're arguing over a question. Who knows what the question is? Who is the greatest? Which one of us is the greatest, God? Tell us. We want to know who's going to get to sit beside you. Jesus calls a child over, puts his hands on him, and he says these words. Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me telling them it's it's not all that hard when you have a heart for loving and you have a heart for serving and you can you can just see how much I love you then you can be one of the greatest assets the kingdom has but it can't be about the power and it can't be about the position or the privilege I love the story of um, a friend of mine's little girl, and she, um, she was talking to her mom, and she talked to her, and she said, you know, I'm, I'm really wondering all these things about heaven, and so she was, she was on about question 20, and when she said, so mom, I really need to know, what are we going to eat in heaven? And the mom was, my friend was just like, you know, okay, we're going to go see our pastor because I don't know the answers to these questions, but we have an expert who knows, so we're going to go see our pastor. So they go in the pastor's office, and the pastor's sitting behind his desk, and he's got his arms crossed, and he's listening to her questions, and, and they get to the one on what to eat, and he says this. The hermeneutical, exegetical manuscripts, such as our Exodus and Deuteronomical scriptures, and the contextual understanding of the eschatological uh, hermeneutic of the eschaton yields an idiopathic conclusion. Well, they left. And the mom said, okay, tell me what he said. And my friend's little girl looked up and said, he doesn't know either. First of all, pastors don't have all the answers. We just don't. We, we are seeking answers just as much as anybody else. 
we have why questions. We have what if questions. We have questions of not understanding things. We come to grow in scripture too, and we're all wanting to know more about Jesus. We don't need big words. We don't have to wear a robe. I could be up here preaching in a shirt and shorts and be just fine and bringing you the same message and the message is what's important. We don't have to dress it up in a bow. We don't have to dot the I's and cross the T's. Some of y'all know my mom was a professor and, and in her classes and in the Sunday school classes that she taught, she, she was always talking about how her students tried to overcomplicate things. They, they wanted to make it harder than it was. And they'd come in and she'd be like, you get this. You just don't see that you get it. <laughs> you know, and, and she was always saying that especially the gospel lesson, especially the gift of salvation and faith and the love of God was something that was so easy and so simple that we stumble all over it. We want that key that unlocks the mysteries of the universe. We read mystery novels because we want to figure it out before the author tells us. We want to feel like we have that ability. You know, at um, pastor school this week, um, we had a lesson on kissing. Now, before you look at me strangely, that's kissing as in keep it simple saints, K-I-S-S. Keeping it simple saints. What does that mean? Well, we could go in the New Testament to educated writers like Paul or Luke, but one of the most uneducated authors in the New Testament, the author of 1 John, the disciple John, wrote a very simple message. He said, number one, you already know what I'm about to tell you. Number two, God is love. Y'all say that with me. God is love. Number three, how do we love God who we can't see? We love him by seeing the people we can see. How do we love God? What does that look like? I have a friend who um, went to Princeton to their seminary, and, and my friend is extremely intelligent, and, and he knows it. Um, but one day, he was particularly proud of himself as he was studying Hebrew. He was sitting in a diner. He had his lexicon. He had his different versions of the Bible. He had his interlinear for the Greek. He had all these different things laid out on the table, and his briefcase was there. He and his friends were there having study group. And they were having a great day. And they were patting themselves on the back for how well they were doing in the seminary program there. How they were learning about Jesus Christ. About that time, a homeless man walked in. Well, he proceeded to knock over the coffee pot and the water pitcher. And he made this big mess and this big noise. And then all of a sudden, they took, they kind of breathed in. And they were like, oh, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. It, you need to go find somewhere to take a shower first. 
you're interrupting our study session. They didn't say it, but they thought it. Well, the next thing they know, the man comes and sits down at the table next to them. And he puts his head down. And he begins to snore. And they're like, seriously? We come here every week to study. We come here a couple of times a week to study. And we're going to have to put up with this. About that time, the cook came out of the kitchen, and they thought, finally, he is going to kick this dude out so we can study. Then they saw the plate of food in the cook's hand. He went over to the table, and he sat it down, put it on the far side of the table for him, put down a drink, put down a couple of dollars, walked away. Well, my friend, who is not very proud of himself now for this, began to say, hmm, that's not going to help him out. I come in here all the time. I don't get free food and money back. I mean, seriously, what is the deal here? And the cook, okay, Siri, I'm not talking to you. Sorry. And so he's like, you know, what is the deal here? And the cook turns around, and he has tears in his eyes. And he looks at my friend and his study group, and he says, I've been where he is. I know what that is. And I know what he needs. friend felt about this big because he realized he'd been where that guy was struggling in life hurting hungry for something to fill him needing compassion and love and grace Books on the table, they didn't matter anymore. Hebrew, Greek, so what? The lesson that day was the same as Carl Bart had said at Princeton 30 years prior. Jesus loves you. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Go back to 1 John. We know the lesson. We know that God is love. And we know that we love God who we can't see by loving those we can see. It's so simple. We miss it. Like having our glasses on our heads. Open your eyes and see. Open your ears and hear. Open your heart and love. A moment's patience can go a long way as we say to others about our own faith and to others about their life. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so.
Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this day. We are so grateful for the ways that you speak to us. So grateful for the ways that we learn about our world and, and about all the, the wondrous works of it. Because the more we know, the more we do see you. But the more we know, we can often miss those basics in life, those things that matter, the things that go straight to the heart of the thing, of life, of faith, of salvation, and that is you love us. Whether we're the person that has it all together, supposedly, or the person who is falling apart, tired, exhausted, in need of compassion, and perhaps a hot meal. You love us just as we are. The simplicity of your gospel is so beautiful, Lord. Write it on our hearts. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen.